There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Hey guys, I just want to give you a heads up. If you're looking for a little entertainment, Season 10 of Meat Eater is dropping September 29th. So hopefully when you're listening to this, that's available. It's on Netflix right now, September 29th, Season 10, Part 1 of the Meat Eater Show with Steve and Ranella. All sorts of great adventures. If you want to scratch that itch and for some reason can't be out there hunting yourself, check it out. It's on Netflix now. Enjoy. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And today on the show, we're joined by West Virginia bow hunter Jared Schaefer to discuss the art and science of making quick adjustments based on the always dynamic and challenging realities of DIY deer hunting. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today in the show, like I just mentioned, we've got Jared Schaefer. He's affectionately known by his friends, family, and colleagues as the Ginger Ninja. Uh, he has been seen on the Tether Nation YouTube channel and known within a number of DIY hardcore whitetail hunting circles as a really, really good get it done no matter what type deer hunter. He's from West Virginia, but he's also hunted all over the country in recent years. The last handful of years, he's been everywhere from North Dakota to Michigan to Kentucky to Missouri to all sorts of parts in between. And he's been in a lot of different unique situations where he's had to adapt his hunting style quickly on the fly. And this seems to be something that he is uniquely uh, uniquely good at. I actually chatted with a handful of his fellow hunters and friends, people that have spent a lot of time with him out in the woods. And this is something that consistently came up as his kind of superpower. One of these guys, a very good deer hunter himself, said of Jared that he's really good, and this is a quote, he's really good at adjusting to the circumstances. He doesn't get stuck in one tactic. I've seen him hunker down and hunt the same spot when it's right, and I've seen him abandon ship and go for a mobile ground attack. He's really good at knowing when to change things up, and he's not afraid. I think those are very admirable traits in a deer hunter. And so that is what I want to dig into in this episode is how does Jared, how does he adjust? 
How does he adapt? Because almost never does a deer hunt go the way you think it's going to, whether that is on a, you know, hunt behind the house for the whole season, or maybe it's a week long trip to some new state, whatever it is, there's always going to be changes. There's always going to be wrenches thrown into the gears. There's always going to be a curveball, And oftentimes, you know, whether we fill a tag or not is going to be dependent on how we adapt, how we overcome that obstacle, how we shift our mindset or our game plan, uh, whatever it might be, we're going to call this the white tail pivot. How do you make those adjustments on the fly? That's what we're going to discuss today with Jared. And I think we're all going to get some helpful nuggets out of this one. Whether you hunt north, south, east, west, the pivot is important. So without further ado, I want to get right into this one. Best of luck to all you folks who are out there hunting right now. Hopefully this will give you a thought or two to keep in mind as you go out there yourself and hopefully we can make the adjustment needed to get it done. So let's get to my chat with Jared Schaefer. All right, with me now on the line, I've got Jared Schaefer. Jared, how are you? Mark, I'm doing good, buddy. First off, I just want to thank you for having me on. I've been a big fan of your podcast, you know, ever since you uh, first started. So it's it's really cool to be on here with you. And uh, hopefully we can talk about some hunting and hopefully it'll be good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, hey, you're, you're welcome and appreciate you making the time to do it. I've, you yeah. know, been been following your, your hunts from afar. I've been seeing you go all over the place and consistently get it done. So I'm sure this is going to be a good conversation. And, uh, I, I actually went and snooped around and talked to some people you know that we both know <laughs> to get some inside ideas and scoops. So I think we'll have some good stuff to, to drill into. Um, Sweet. Yeah, I, I'm excited about this. So so I, I've been getting away from doing these long, winding introductions into people's history uh, and rather just jumping right into the good stuff. So... Rather than yep. telling me your life story and what you did when you're four or five years old, what do you think about just jumping <laughs> jumping right into the meat and potatoes of how you deer hunt? Do you like that idea? I like it. Let's do it. All right. So here's here's the first thing that came to mind for me at least when I was thinking about Jared, aka the Ginger Ninja, as uh, as you've been called <laughs> a time or two. I, you know, times, yeah. yeah. I, I see in just the last few years, right? You're in Missouri. You're in Kentucky, you're in West Virginia, Ohio, North Dakota, Michigan, California, Alaska, I think all over yeah. the place, right? <laughs> you're hunting public, you're hunting private, you're in trees, you're on the ground, you're all over the place. If, I am all over the place. <laughs> yeah. So when I look at all that, and if I had to like put a word on something that seems to define you and your deer hunting, it's it's maybe diverse. You have this diverse set of experiences, diverse uh, set of tools in your toolbox. If you had to step back, given all that, and look back on the last five to 10 years or so of your hunting life, doing all these trips, doing all these different things, if there was one single thing that stood out to you, if you could look back over this last decade or so and said, okay, I've been to all these places, seen all these things, tried all these ideas. Is there one thing that stands out above all the rest that you could say, you know what, that one light switch moment, or that one lesson or that one mistake I made that I learned from has made me more successful now in 2021. Can you think of one thing that pops out when I say that? And that's a great question. And, uh, 
you know, to preface all this, I haven't been hunting out of state all that long. I really, I, I think the first time I ever hunted out of state was in Ohio back in 2014. So, you know, I haven't been doing the, the public land thing that long, really. So it's kind of, it's, it's been really cool to, uh, to travel the last few years and to hunt so many different places. And man, I was thinking about this earlier. I think the main thing for me is just being as versatile as I could be. You know, I try not to get stuck in doing things one certain way or hunting one type of terrain. It's just, I try to learn, um, you know, anywhere I go, I try to learn the best way to hunt that spot. And if that's from a tree, I do it from a tree. If that's from the ground, I do it from the ground. Um, I mean, heck just this past week in North Dakota, I hunted new territory, uh, you know, new terrain that I've never hunted and I had to quickly adapt. So just being versatile and quick to adapt on these shorter out of state trips, that has been pretty much the key for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you bring that up because a couple of my sources brought that very same thing up is, is kind of your superpower. Like you have this ability to pivot like on a dime and adjust to the new circumstances and, and quickly make that shift. And man, from my own experience, that's one of the hardest things to do. It's, it's so important, but it's not easy. Uh, yeah. Yep. Let's talk about that North Dakota hunt you're just on. Uh, yep. I want to see if there's some examples within that, that maybe illustrate this. Can you kind of lay the, the basic groundwork of where you were hunting and what the situation was that kind of forced you into that kind of scenario? Yeah. So to go back, we hunted North Dakota last year. We hunted kind of the Northeastern side of North Dakota where there was a lot of timber, um, typical river bottoms with, you know, acorns that backed up to crop fields, stuff like that. So we hunted that last year and we did really well. We killed, I think three or four bucks in a week. Um, I, I missed a really good buck and then ended up killing one toward the end of the trip, but it was kind of your typical setup on terrain. Um, you know, hunt the, 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 typical easy looking stuff, I guess you should say when you're looking at a map. But this year we went to a different part of North Dakota, farther West, um, more centrally located in the state. And the piece of property we were hunting was mostly just big ag fields and cattail swamps with just very, very few trees in them. So you'd have a shelter belt here or a little pocket of trees. And, um, you know, when we went out there, Um, some of the guys had already been out there, had done some scouting. They had set up preset locations and some shelter belts and some of these smaller pockets of trees. And within the first hunt, I quickly realized that these deer aren't going to get to these pockets of trees in the daylight. I was kind of glassing, um, some, some marsh country that was maybe 300 yards away. And that's where I was seeing all the deer, you know, they were coming out of those marshes where there's no trees. So I pretty much abandoned the idea of sitting in a tree the rest of the week and strictly hunt off, I hunted off the ground and I just kept moving closer and closer. And, uh, toward the end of the trip, I pretty much had, had these bucks figured out where they were bedding, uh, what they were doing with the wind. And I almost got it done the last night. I had a nice buck at about 43 yards and I was, I was getting stingy on the range and I was trying to get a little bit closer, but it just didn't work out. But, uh, you know, I, I consider that a, a success, you know, when you put the pieces together and you at least get a nice buck in range. So that was, uh, it was interesting to hunt a different terrain type that I've never hunted, but still was able to, you know, get on a buck pretty quick. Yeah. How hard, well, let me take a step back. 
coming into this hunt, when you heard about your buddies out there, or these other people who kind of had, you know, preset some stuff, it sounded like they had kind of a, a pre-imagined plan. And, and one of the things that I, that I do is leading into any one of these trips, I usually have a game plan of what I think I'm going to do. Like, here's what I, you know, if the conditions are like this, I'm going to hunt here. If the conditions are like this, I'm going to try this. At least I have like a pre, I don't know, a set of plays to choose from for the beginning of a hunt. But then, you know, in a situation like we described, it sounded like pretty quickly you realized that the playbook wasn't going to work for what you were actually seeing. How hard, I guess, question number one is, do you come into a hunt like this with a set of plays already kind of mapped out? I I think I want to do this, this, and this. Or do you have no preconceived notions and you show up on day one saying, you know what, I'm not going to make any decisions before we get here on the ground and see what's happening. I guess I'm trying to understand, like, what do you have when you start and how hard is it to change off of that? Yeah. So I go into every hunt with at least some kind of idea, you know, I'll look at the maps, um, do some Scott, some cyber scouting and, uh, you know, I at least have kind of a rough idea in my head of how I think it should go. And then, you know, you get there. Um, oftentimes the pressure is different. The terrain is different than you think. And, uh, you know, I just try to, try to be really fluid if you know that's the best way i can say it and uh this hunt was a lot like that you know once we got there um we were looking at what the cameras were showing and there wasn't hardly any daytime movement and then after the first night you know all the other guys were sitting other spots and you know they weren't seeing anything so it was just clear to me that you know i just needed to to do something else and that that's another thing that i'll do you know if you're hunting with a group of buddies you know talk to, talk to the guys you're hunting with, see what they're seeing, see what the the movement patterns are, what they're observing. Or, you know, if I'm hunting public land, I'll talk to other guys that are hunting in the same area and see what they're seeing. And if, you know, the theme is kind of the same and people are, you know, they're not doing, they're not doing very well with one tactic. I start to think about what, what's the one thing that other people aren't doing, you know, try to be a little bit different. Um, whether that's hunting a, a completely new spot, it's maybe overlooked or a different tactic, you know, that's, that's always been kind of my go-to and I'm pretty quick to ditch something or an idea if I don't think it's going to work. It's just kind of a gut feeling. Um, but you know, I'll ditch something pretty quick to be honest with you, if I don't think it's going to work out. Like what's that thought process look like? Uh, does it take like a sit that's bad, a day that's bad what goes through the ginger ninja's head when you're starting to have this realization like, oh, this isn't going to work. And then there's this shift between like that realization to then, okay, now I got to change to this. Like what's that internal discussion or conversation look like in your head when you're at that kind of pivotal moment? Yeah. So it's, it seems to take me about two hunts to abandon uh, you know, my previous plans. And this, this last hunt was a really good example of that. You know, I sat that spot that night, observed these deer doing something completely different. So I sat that spot again the next night and I saw the deer do the same exact thing. So, you know, I thought in my head, the deer aren't doing what I want them to do. So I'm just going to have to go to them, abandon everything that I had planned and, uh, and figure something out. And for me to decide that I'm going to get out of a tree and hunt on the ground. That's, that's a harder decision for me because I'm not the greatest ground spot and stock hunter, but you know, I felt like that was the thing to do. So, um, 
you know, that's what I did. But it, I'll switch even even mid hunt. I've got down, you know, I've you know, pick a spot, whatever. There's good sign there. I've cyber scouted it, boots on the ground, whatever. But if I sit there and I see a couple deer or a couple bucks do the same thing, I have gotten down within an hour of that sit and relocated. So it just depends on the situation. You know, a lot of times um, it's a quick thing. Um, other times it may take me a couple of days. It just depends on the situation. Yeah, man, that's one of the hardest things when you see a different behavior, a different travel pattern or whatever than what you wanted them to do. And then you're stuck there. I mean, I was in this exact same situation just a week and a half ago or whatever on a hunt of my own where yeah. you're, you're set up where you think they have to come through. And then you see the first deer do something different. And then the second deer does something different. And the third deer does yep. something different. And you're thinking, <laughs> oh, no. Like, I, you know that feeling. We're like, oh, no. It's, oh, yeah. They're all going to go right there. And then you're sitting <laughs> and thinking to yourself, okay, do I risk moving right now? when it's still like mid movement and maybe I can get over there soon enough and catch whatever's coming or do I ride it out because you know, deer are wild animals and they don't always do what you think. And you know, if I go over there, then of course the buck's going to come right by me where I was. <laughs> um, like w describe to me the situation where you actually are willing to mid sit, yank your set and move. I mean, that's a bold move. Uh, tell me yeah. what it would take for that to happen. Well, I, I have a good example of that. I was hunting in a spot in Ohio um, a couple years ago, and I'd scouted this spot out, and there was there was good bucks on there. I'd actually had a couple sits in that exact tree in the past where I'd had encounters, but for whatever reason, that morning I saw three different mature bucks take a different travel route, and I think it was it was due to the wind that morning, the way the wind was coming through that area. Um, but all the bucks were traveling a little bit higher up on the ridge. And when I see three different mature bucks do the same exact thing, I, I pretty much have to, to adapt. You know what I mean? I'm not going to sit there the rest of the day just hoping that one's going to come by where wow. I'm at. So exactly. So I'm just going to hop down and move. And I, I ended up moving that hunt uh, like 830 in the morning. And I moved up to that spot and I sat there the rest of the day and it didn't pay off. But, you know, I saw three different bucks do that. So. You know, I wasn't going to sit there and just hope that one was going to wander by. Yeah. So how do you, uh, how do you make that move? Like, did you wait? Uh, like, I'm wondering about the details because I've been in the situation too. And I'm wondering, okay, I got to make a move. What's the ideal time to make the move? So do I move immediately after that third buck or do I wait till like 10 AM? And I think it's slowing down a little bit. And did you pull down your set and then creep? your way to the next tree or did you say I got to rip the bandaid off and get there as fast as I can. I don't care how loud I am. Like talk me through that whole process. Cause, cause the whole thing's kind of fascinating and kind of terrifying if you're in that situation. Right. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. I mean, you're thinking the whole time, you know, this is, you know, I'm, I'm tearing down a set in the middle of what could be the peak movement time. So it's definitely a big risk. Um, that particular hunt, it was more like ripping the bandaid off. You know, I, packed up my stuff as quick as I could. I got down the tree, you know, it's middle of the rut. So I'm not super worried about noise or anything like that, but packed everything up, climbed down the tree. I wasn't super worried about, you know, all the noise I was making. I basically made just a beeline straight to where that, where those bucks were moving. And I set up as quickly as I could, but, uh, you know, it, it could be different depending on situations like, um, you know, I may not be as apt to move like that in the early season. Um, you know, it, it just depends on the 
on the time of year and what the deer are doing. So it's, it's a tough call and it's, uh, man, it's just a gut instinct to me. You know, if, yeah. if I feel something telling me that I need to move, I, you know, I try to make it happen, but it's, it's not an easy decision to make. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't is they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I think I saw somewhere, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on the specifics here, but I think you've been running a saddle for eight years now. Is that right? Uh, started in 2014. So yeah, I guess that's right at this point. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's nearly a decade in the saddle. That's, that's longer than most people not named John Eberhardt. Um, it's longer, <laughs> longer than me. Although I think I started running one in 2017, I think. Um, so you've been doing this a while and you've obviously, you know, fine tuned this mobile style has, has a saddle hunting or mobile hunting approach um, yeah, the answer is probably yes, of course, but I want to dive into more like how, how has saddle hunting, how has this mobile setup allowed you to pivot like this? I mean, is that the thing that has allowed you to make these quick moves in a lot of cases? 
Absolutely. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, you know, I started, I've always mobile hunted. Like I've always used a climbing tree stand. So I've always been pretty mobile. And if I see deer moving, I just go toward the deer at, you know, I've always thought it's pretty simple. You see the deer moving, you can move to them. So, um, when I started self-filming all my hunts and carrying all that weight, like, man, there has got to be a better way than carrying this 40 pound climbing stand. So I started looking into the saddle stuff and, uh, coincidentally that was the first year that i hunted out of state in ohio and the first year that i switched to the saddle i killed two nice bucks out of it so i was kind of immediately hooked on it i was like this is you know it's it's not only a fun way to hunt but it's for sure effective so Mm -hmm. you know the past you know four or five years i've kind of honed my mobile run and gun skills i guess you should should say and uh you know i think it's helped tremendously it seems like every year i top my best buck or I kill a really good buck. And, uh, you know, I think just being able to move so quick and quiet, it's just such a huge help. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not for everybody, you know, not everybody's going to like hunting from a saddle, but for me, um, man, I think it's the only way to fly for me. Yeah. Are there any other situations where you're up in your saddle somewhere you, you described one example, which was you're up in the tree and you saw three mature bucks go by the same morning and they're out of range. Say so moved. Mm-hmm. What what are some other things that would be enough for you to move? I guess what I'm trying to get at here is what are the boxes that have to be checked that would force you to say, all right, I got to get out of here. I got to move. You know, sometimes it's I'll debate like if I see a mature buck do something once, is that enough or not? Or is that a random thing? Um, you know, I have those types of internal debates all the time. What, like, yep. what are the few things that would make you say, yes, absolutely. Can you give me some more detail there? Yeah. Like you said, so if I see, if I see a few different deer, um, doing one particular thing, um, if I see them, if I see them hitting a food source that I wasn't aware of in the area. Um, you know, maybe there's an oak tree dropping that I, I didn't know was there. You know, that's, that's a one thing. Um, so food source movement, um, if they're bedded in a, in a different spot, then, then maybe I plan for, um, and it's, it's such a hard question to answer because there's so many different variables there. Yeah. Um, you know, if I feel like the tree I'm in, you know, I don't have enough cover for whatever reason. Um, and there's a tree 25 yards over that's has better cover. Um, maybe the wind direction. Um, I've switched trees a lot of times just based off the wind direction. So, you know, I go into an area completely blind. I've never hunted it. I'll set up in a tree that I think will work with the wind. But when you get up there, you know, you, d- you discover that it doesn't work. So um, definitely the wind direction. So I would say, you know, deer movement's probably number one. I'm, I'm watching for that. You know, if they're doing something completely different, I'm going to abandon pretty quick and and move over, but then, you know, add in all those other things. And it's kind of a combination of everything. Um, but then sometimes I know that the tree that I'm in is the right tree and I'll, I'll stick it out because you know what the, the does and small bucks are doing, maybe the big bucks aren't doing. So it's just very situation dependent. And, uh, yeah, that's that's a hard question to answer. <laughs> yeah. So so you you, you kind of led me into the next thing I have to ask even though it's still not easy to answer. Uh <laughs> talk me through the scenarios or the situations 
where you would say, I have to stay. I have to stick it out. It's not going the way I thought it would, or this deer did that thing, but that's not enough. I need to stick it out. Like what are the situations where you're going to stick it? Yes. So last year's buck in Ohio was a good example of that. Um, I had identified this ridge point where all these bucks were, were cruising through and, uh, they were only com- the one that I was really after. He was only coming through about once every three days. And the tree that I had picked on this ridge point, it worked perfectly with the wind. It had good cover. The, the main trail that most of the bucks seemed to be using was 15 yards. And my access was pretty much bulletproof to get in here. So it was one of those situations where I knew if I sat that particular tree, I was going to get a shot. And I think I hunted that tree four different times before I shot that buck. Um, but you know, in that situation, I wasn't getting picked off. I wasn't getting winded. Um, you know, I felt like my entry was pretty dang near perfect. So in that situation, you know, especially during the rut, when you've got these bucks, it seems like they're on a circuit where they pass through every few days. Um, that's when I'll stick to a spot and I'll, I'll stay in one tree even. And you had previous years experience there and pictures all confirming your, your kind of confidence in that spot, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Had trail camera pictures. I'd hunted the area the year before. So, um, I had pretty high confidence. That was a really good spot. Yeah. That's always so hard though, because we, especially folks like us who have gotten into this run and gun style, it's, you know, the, the dark side to mobile hunting, I think is (laughs) that there is this temptation to always switch it up. Right. Yeah. Because, because it's so yeah. e- it's relatively so easy now that I can jump to here and jump to there and try this and try that. And I sometimes wonder if, if I overdo it sometimes. Um, sure. Yeah. Do you, do you ever worry about that? And you know, how, how do you deal with that? If so? Yeah, it's not something I worry about so much. Um, you know, I keep saying gut instinct, but man, that's, I go by that so much. It's just, what do I feel like is right for the situation? So, you know, if, if I feel like I need to stay put, I'll stay put. If I need to move, I'm going to move. But, you know, to your point, it is very easy to, to move around too much and then not give a spot the time that it needs because, you know, you're not always going to go in the very first sit and kill, which I mean, that happens a lot too. but you know, especially during the rut time frame. I mean, these bucks aren't staying in one particular spot, you know, maybe a big, big mature buck may have, you know, a pretty tight core area, but if you're just hunting for a general, like a nice buck, you don't really care what buck it is out of all the deer on your trail camera. Um, you know, I feel like that's when, uh, some people should just stick to one spot and, uh, you know, not worry about bouncing around too much. So, yeah. Cause sometimes you just got to give them the chance to come by. They're going to come by eventually if you're in one of those perfect places. Um, yeah. but it, you know, it comes back to this, this, uh, I don't know this, this not rule, but mantra, I guess of sorts where we always talk about the first sit is the best sit, right? Um, yep. but sometimes you do need to ride out a spot. What's the longest you would ride out a spot like the one you described in Ohio that just everything seemed perfect. You had confidence in it. You knew from historical observations and pictures, like they're going to come through. How long will you give a spot like that? 
Uh, for me, typically, if I sit it five times and something doesn't happen, I'm usually moving on. So, um, and to hunt a spot five times, like I said earlier, it needs to be you know good access, you know the wind and a lot of different things working together, you know, for you. So, um, you know, I feel like after that that amount of time, if something hasn't happened, I get I start to lose confidence in the spot, and I think that that's really important. If you don't have if you don't have the confidence to sit there, um, you know, I think that's a good time to move because, you know, if you're not confident, you're not, you're not alert, you're sitting there playing on your phone, you know, your mind's kind of elsewhere. So, um, I'll kind of, you know, I'll stick with that spot until I feel like, you know, my confidence is starting to go downhill and then that's when I pop smoke and move. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're hunting, you know, one of these new spots or you're on some kind of trip and you went in your original game plan and it didn't go the way you wanted to. And then you pivoted, you made a change and that wasn't going the way you wanted to. And, you know, you, you tried several things, nothing was working. You didn't have an observation to go off of. You didn't have a new trail camera picture to tell you, Ooh, go there. Um, have you ever been in that scenario where you found yourself at the end of an evening hunt, maybe, and you're walking back to the truck and you just kind of feel lost, like nothing's working. And for, <laughs> for 10 minutes or an hour or four hours, you're kind of in a funk and you're like, God dang it. I don't know. I don't know what to do. Have you, have you ever found yourself just <laughs> stuck in a funk like that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Several times. Um, I, I, that way it was that way in Missouri last year. We, we went down and hunted, um, during the rut. And the weather wasn't good and the deer movement wasn't good. And I was trying all these spots that I thought would be, you know, just dynamite. I just wasn't seeing what I thought I should see. And it was just, it was just one of those trips. It was just a grind, you know, just, you know, day in, day out, not seeing much, you know, none of your, none of your grand plans are working, <laughs> but, um, that trip, um, so I didn't end up killing a deer, but, I had an, I had an encounter with a nice buck and it was, you know, getting toward the end of the trip. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to try something stupid. If it works, it works. If not, whatever. So I ended up sitting in this spot, um, right beside the road. I was like 38 yards from the road and, um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> literally 38 yards from the road. Um, somebody had seen a decent buck in the corner of this field, right by the road. And, you know, I looked at the maps and I was like, man, it just kind of makes sense why they're crossing right there. All these ridge points dumped down in and they're crossing this, this creek bottom right beside the road. And I was like, I'm just going to go sit right beside the road. Like, I don't care. You know, I'll try something, you know, stupid like that. So I went up and I sat up, um, right beside the road and it was like an hour into my sit. It was like two 30 in the afternoon. A nice buck comes down out of the timber, crosses the gravel road. And he's standing in this bottom, like this brushy creek bottom. And I grunted that deer right in. I mean, he came walking in perfect. And uh, I took a crack at him at 24 yards and he he ducked my arrow really bad and I just barely clipped him. But um, just doing something crazy, like sitting right beside the road, um, it almost worked out. I mean, if, you know, if I'd have made my shot count, it would it would have worked. So, you know, after grinding all week long and not having any luck, you know, I was doing, trying to do everything right. You know, I'm going deep away from people, mm -hmm. hunting spots that, 
that look right. Their sign is there and it just wasn't working. But then I ended up getting a shot at one right beside the road. So not crazy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I love it. I, I ask about that because, you know, I've certainly found myself in those situations before too. And usually, usually I'll be in that funk for, I don't know, a couple hours or an evening or something. And I'll be like, I don't know what to do. Just like you said, I tried all these different things. I did all the right things that you're supposed to do and nothing's working. And I keep trying this thing and I tried that thing and I tried this different thing. And, you know, I don't know what to do now. Um, One thing that's helped me in that situation is. And I don't always get to this quickly. Sometimes it takes me, like I said, till the next morning or something, but I've got to like kind of clear my mind and say, okay, stop trying to figure out like what, what the next thing to do is. And instead go back to step one, like go back to the very bare bone basics, like reset, hit reset on the whole thing. Yep. Forget about all the stuff that went wrong. And now just look at the whole situation as if you were brand new to it. Like look at this with brand new eyes, try to look at, the setting as if you're a different person and you don't have this baggage that you carried with you for the last seven days and, and just start from, <laughs> start from scratch, start as if you were brand new. And sometimes like just that reset helps me, um, just kind of all of a sudden see things more clearly or realize like, Oh yeah, duh, just stick to the whatever. <laughs> um, right. When you found yourself lost in Missouri or any other situation like that, um, you, you told me what your ultimate idea was, but can you talk me through like the process to get to that point? Or like, you know, did you have any kind of any of that anguish that I described and how do you kind of work through that? How did you get to that point? How do you, how do you handle and find your way out of the wilderness, so to speak, um, in those situations? Yeah. So this spot we were hunting, we had actually hunted it the year before as well. And the year before, um, the weather was a lot better. There was less pressure. There was a lot more bucks moving and it was just an overall better hunt. So when I went into the hunt this past year, I had that, that hunt in my head, you know, the hunt of years, you know, the year prior. So, you know, I had it in my head that there was going to be big bucks running everywhere. I could hunt the same spots. It was all going to be pretty much exactly the same. And I could pick up right where I left off, but you know, three, four days into the hunt, I quickly realized that that absolutely wasn't the case. The weather was different. Um, there was a lot more acorns, the bucks weren't moving. And it's, it's just like you said, you have to, you have to be able to reset and just, just think this isn't working. I need to do something different. And for me, that's when I start looking just I call it just doing something stupid. Just do the most obvious thing that other people aren't doing. Like sitting right beside the road, you know, there was people that were riding right past this spot day in and day out. And, you know, nobody was even looking right there. So uh, to me that it makes it just more exciting. You know, you're doing something that you haven't done. You're, you're going to a different spot and, you know, who knows, you may hunt this different spot with no comp- no preconceived notion of anything. And you may pick up one piece of Intel that helps you start onto another puzzle. You know what I mean? You may see a buck in this new spot and you're like, Oh, he's traveling. He's doing this. So I'm just going to move and, you know, start putting those pieces back together again. So you basically, you know, like you said, just completely wipe the slate, start over. And, you know, I think that that reset is, is really good. You know, it gets your mind working again, you know, you're in a different area with different deer, maybe. And for me that, you know, I just feel like it helps keep me sharp. If I keep doing, if I try to keep doing the same thing, um, 
I just get really bored with it. And, you know, I stop paying attention. You know, I'm not, I'm not sitting in the tree paying attention like I should. So, um, you know, that reset for me, like you said, just doing something completely different is, has been really big, a big help for me at least. Yeah. Yeah. You, when you, when you say, uh, you know, do the stupid thing, it brings to mind a, a story that Dan Infault, I don't know where it was, if it was an article or a conversation, a podcast or something, but he was talking about how, you know, it always seems like the brand new hunter, like the kid hunter or the first time hunter that goes and sits out in a bucket in some random yep. place, they kill the biggest buck of the year, right? You always see those stories <laughs> and that's always the person yep. that shoots the giant. And it's like, why is that? It's not an accident. It's because yep. they don't know any of the stuff you're supposed to do. So they go hunt the stupid spot that no other legit quote unquote deer hunter would go do. <laughs> and then that's where the big giant buck is. Um, yep, exactly. It's funny. Sometimes we probably, you know, outdo ourselves, outsmart ourselves, overthink and, uh, you know, go force deer into doing these stupid things because that's what we're not doing. And sometimes it pays to throw those, you know, throw the curveball, do something totally differently, especially if you've been doing all the quote unquote right stuff and it's not working. Um, that's, yep. that's sometimes just the change of pace you need. Yeah. I mean, and, and what's the, you know, what's it hurt to try it? You know, you're not, you're, you weren't doing any good to begin with. So you might as well, you might as well do something kind of off the wall. And, you know, I've, I've always said, you just got to have fun with it. You know, don't too, put too much pressure on yourself and, uh, you know, just go with your gut instinct, have fun with it. If you blow a deer out, you know, who cares? I mean, you're you, these, tri- these out of state trips, especially where you have four or five days to get it done. I mean, you just got to, you just got to go for it and see what happens. If you don't kill one, you know, who cares? It, you know, that's not what the trip's about anyway, but, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I do. And I think it, it's, it's fun at least. I mean, <laughs> it's got to yeah. count for something, right? Well, and to your point, if you, if you find yourself losing confidence or getting bored or f- too frustrated, like as soon as your mind goes bad, that's when you miss your opportunity, right? That's when you're not focusing. That's when you don't do the little things right. So as soon as you lose that mental edge, you're out of the hunt already. So you you might as well do something different to just get your edge back uh, for the simple fact of that will make you more effective and and actually like there in that, you know, mentally there to actually be able to take advantage of an opportunity if it does arrive. Yep, 100% agree. You mentioned something about blowing out deer, right? Um, which brings to mind another kind of pivot that I often have to think about, which is <laughs> what happens when you set up in a dynamite spot? Like this looks like a killing set. You maybe saw the big buck yesterday and you moved in or maybe not. Maybe it's just like hot sign. Amazing. You get in there. It's perfect. And then you get blown up by some does. Um, and then you don't see anything that night. I'm curious in this kind of situation where you kind of blew it up, but you don't know to what degree, um, will you ride out something like that? Or will you say, eh, that doe family group just made a ruckus. I got to move. <laughs> or does it have to happen two days in a row? Or, you know, tell me about how you'd react to that kind of situation. Yeah. So that's a great question. And I'm actually, I'm sitting in my living room right now and I'm looking at three different bucks on the wall that I killed. And I can distinctly remember getting blown at by two or three different does. Um, <laughs> and, and I ended up killing the buck the same night. So nice. I, I don't pay a 
whole lot of attention to it. I mean, it's obviously annoying and you don't want it to happen, but um, I've had enough success after, you know, blowing the deer out that, uh, you know, I, I look at the situation, you know, it just depends. Sometimes, sometimes I, you know, I'll blow them out and it, it, it does kind of ruin the hunt for me. But, um, you know, I've, these, these two bucks that I'm looking at right here, um, they were earlier season hunts. Um, I was hunting really tight to buck bedding and, you know, you know, as well as I do that, that the does are bedding, you know, they're not right on top of the buck, but they're on the outskirts or where that buck's yeah. bedded. And it's almost impossible sometimes to get in on them and, and not blow something out. There's going to be does or small bucks or whatever. Yeah. And in my experience, man, you, you jump those does up and you know, if they don't cause too big of a ruckus, those bucks don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. At least in my experience, um, you know, the, the bucks I was just talking about, uh, the one in particular, I was, I was sneaking in that afternoon and, uh, there was three does standing under the tree that I wanted to get in and, you know, they took off blowing and stomping and, you know, their whole ordeal. And, uh, I set up in that tree, just carry on with the plan. You know, I'd already, you know, taken the time to get back into this bedding area. So it was like, I'm not abandoning, you know, ship now I've got all this Intel. I know this buck is in here, so I'm just going to ride it out and just see what happens. And, it, you know, an hour later he came out of that bed and I shot him. So hmm. it, uh, you can't get too hung up on all that, but so you bring up a you bring up a question that I often um, find myself wrestling with throughout hunting season, uh, and maybe you just answered it with that anecdote. But you're walking into your tree stand, and you're maybe you feel like you're running a little bit late, and you get close to the tree, and there's a doe or several does, and you've got two options: you could either hunker down and try to wait till she moves away. And hopefully she moves away and that you can get to your tree stand eventually without it being too late. Or you say, screw it. I got to get to that tree and get going and just move and just spook that doe on purpose. So you can just get going and do your thing. Which of those two situations would you opt for in most cases? Well, I mean, obviously I'd like to set up without spooking them, but if there's no way around it, you know, rip the bandaid off, get them out of there. Just, just get them out of the way and, and get set up. And, uh, Hopefully they don't run, you know, through where you think the buck's bedding at. Um, you know, if you can get them to run the other way, that's obviously ideal. But, uh, yeah, I would on those hunts like that, man, I, I don't want to see the does. Like, I don't want to see the small bucks. I don't want them. I don't mm -hmm. want to have them underneath me for any amount of time. Like I just want them out of there. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those risky things, you know, do you try to try to get set up without blowing them or, or not, but. You know what we need? I need like a long distance slingshot so that if you got a situation like that, you can like aim a, a stone to the right side of that doe to burst so she'll run off to the left or whatever. <laughs> yep. <laughs> or like you're hunting and you've got this doe that's lingering underneath your tree stand all evening and you just know she's going to eventually smell you or pick you off. And so you just got to get yep. her out. Just, just give her a little, good little pop in the back end with a little rock and just get her move on. I think that's maybe the next big product idea. <laughs> hey, that's that's a great idea. I mean, you could probably patent that. So. Yeah, I'm gonna, I got to think of a clever name and then that one's going to be gold. <laughs> um, we talked about when does blow you out and how that didn't really mess up your hunts in the past. What about a buck though? What about when a buck busts you? And let's say, I mean, there's some places we hunt where we know there's a whole bunch of bucks we'd be willing to shoot and we're not real picky. 
but let's say this is, I don't know. And, and maybe this, maybe this example isn't going to work for you, but let's say it's Ohio on one of these properties you've hunted for a while and you know, the bucks that are there and there's really like two of them, maybe one or two of them that are really like the ones you want. Like I know last year that buck mm-hmm. you killed was, I think the buck you really wanted to kill. Right. So yeah, what if, yeah. what if a situation like that happens where the buck you really want blows you out? Like he, he spots you in the tree and he pegs you hard and he's out of there. Do you give up on that tree? immediately and say, okay, well, it's not happening here. I got to move. Or do you think that he'll make a mistake maybe two days later because he's on a doe or whatever? What's your thought process on that situation? Yeah, when it comes to that, I mean, if he busts me and he for sure smells me, um, I'll pretty much abandon that spot and, and try to move around on, you know, on what I think he'll do to avoid that spot. Because I think that, you know, once they, once they pick off, you know, especially if they smell you, they're going to, they're going to remember that the next time they come through. So I'll try to, I'll try to play off that. I might not move too far, but I'll, I'll move far enough away that, you know, he's, he's not looking for me in that particular tree. Um, if he doesn't smell me, I don't worry so much about that. Um, I've killed bucks after they've, you know, busted me, especially walking in. Um, I busted a buck a couple years ago, walking into a spot and, uh, I just so happened to know he, he was, he was bedded down and I busted him up, but the wind was in my favor. He, he, he didn't really know what I was. He, you could tell by the way he ran off. He just kind of, you know, bounded out and didn't blow or anything. So, um, I actually knew the next bed, um, up the ridge that he would probably come back to. So it's, you know, basically a bump and dump. So I bumped him. I immediately moved straight to that bed where I, I thought he would come back to. And he ended up coming right back to it. Um, he wasn't overly spooked or anything. And I ended up killing him that night. But, um, so when you say you immediately moved, like he, he, when you, you bumped him, like you were in a tree and he saw you and spooked. And so you got out of that tree and pulled your set and then hiked a couple hundred yards down the ridge to another spot and set up in a tree over that bed. I was actually walking in when I bumped him. Gotcha. He was, uh, he was bedded in a little bit different spot that I wasn't planning on. And, uh, you know, I kind of soft bumped him, I guess you would say he didn't smell me. So, yeah. um, you know, I watched the direction he went and then just kind of quickly, but quietly moved up, up the ridge to where I thought he would come back to. And that's, that's what ended up working out. Okay. Speaking of quickly, but quietly, this brings up another thing that I'm always interested in. Um, I, for years, would stress over walking super slow and super quiet, even if it was crunchy, frosty, no wind, November morning, that type of scenario, you know, that dreaded mm-hmm. deer can hear you two miles away kind of situation. <laughs> and then uh, more recently, uh, I just started doing the rip the bandaid off thing and say, you know what, I'm going to make a racket <laughs> no matter what I do. So I could either do it slowly and be loud. Or I could do it quickly and be loud. <laughs> sure. Um, so I've started doing that more often. What's what's your take on that dilemma? Yeah, so it depends on you know what kind of hunt it is. So if if I'm early season and I'm honing in on where a buck's bedded at, and I'm trying to set up within you know 75 yards of him, it will take me two hours to go you know 100 yards or so, just super slow. And I guess this is why they call me the ginger ninja. I don't know, but I was just, <laughs> I would just take my, you know, it would take me all afternoon to get into a spot. Um, you know, early season when I know that they're bedded in a, in a particular spot now yeah. during the rut, um, 
I'm like you during the rut. It's like rip a bandaid off. I'm getting in there and I'm getting set up. So, um, yeah, it just de- completely depends on the, the time of the year and, uh, the, the, the situation. Talk to me a little bit more about your approach with these beds. Cause I know you do a decent amount of this buck bed hunting and you're doing mm-hmm. it in some hilly country there in West Virginia. And I'm imagining that's something you're doing in those Ohio spots, that Southern Ohio. Um, yep. what is your approach to finding places like that that you can actually hunt? Because there's one, there's, it's one thing to like say, Oh, I found a quote unquote buck bed. It's another thing to find one and then actually be able to hunt it and kill something near it. Um, yep. can you talk to me kind of through your evolution of, of how you've kind of figured that out and what's been the trick that's made that work for you? Yeah. And you, you said it, I mean, it's fine in the spots that you can access and that's, that's 100% the hardest part. Um, I, I know of several beds that, that you get used a lot, but there's absolutely no way you can get into them or not a way that I found anyway. Um, so for me, it's, it's trying to identify ones that are, you know, they're well used, they're used by, you know, whatever, a couple different mature bucks and, can I get in on them? You know, sometimes, uh, access has to be a little creative, um, in hill country, you know, we've got a lot of steep digit ditches that come off these ridges. And a lot of times I'll get down in those ditches and just go straight up the side of a hill. And one of the better beds that I hunt that I've killed a couple nice bucks out of, you know, it sets up just like that where, um, they're bedded on the side of this ridge and they've got a pretty decent sight advantage, but the ditch that runs up the side of the ridge, um, you know, they can't see down in it. And it also blocks your, your sound as well as you're coming up. So that's one of those beds that, um, the access is pretty good and the, the deer use it fairly often. So that's a, that's a really good setup that I have. Um, you know, I've got a couple others that are, that are good too. And, you know, really I've only got maybe a handful of beds that I feel could produce a, a, a nice buck. And yeah, usually the access is, is the problem is like you said, it's some of them are just, you know, they're set up to, you know, they have every advantage and it's really hard to beat them. <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing with this style of hunting, which, which I've dabbled with. I, I do not claim to be an expert in this at all, but I've dabbled and I've heard, obviously talked to a lot of people that do it a lot and it's, it's pretty obviously a high risk, high reward type of hunt, right? Um, where you're going to go in there and you get tight to a bed and either it's going to happen or it's very likely that you're going to educate that deer in some kind of way. So I think a mistake that a lot of people make is that they hear about this style of hunting. They see somebody do it successfully and and tout it and like, oh man, that's the way you got to do it. And then they only have (laughs) like their 30 acre family farm that they can hunt and they do it a few times and they've blown that place up for the rest of the season. Um, yeah. I think that happens quite a bit. How do you, you mentioned you only have a handful of of beds that you can actually hunt. How do you, how do you handle that risk, right? How do you either spread out your hunts so that that doesn't happen? Or how do you know when the right time is to go versus, you know, when not to, do you give each one of these beds one hunt, two hunts, four hunts? Uh, Talk to me about how you kind of avoid that real significant, weak spot of this style of hunting, this, this risk that you face if you're trying to do that. Yeah. So I hunt, you know, out of state and, you know, several different pieces of property here in West Virginia. So I, I try to, 
you know, identify what I think are going to be the better beds for each time of the year. So early season, pre-rut, rut, and, you know, I'll kind of bounce around to, you know, these different spots where I feel like I have the best chance. So, you know, these, these beds may be on different pieces of property. So I'll throw a sit at one bed. If it doesn't work out, I'll just jump to the next one. So I just kind of make a, a circle, you know, I'll come back to the, the other bed. If I feel like, you know, I need to sit it again, I'll sit it two times. You know, I use very rarely will I hunt it more than twice, but I just kind of try to spread that pressure out between properties and even states even. So, um, you know, it just, it takes a lot of work to find setups like that. And like I said, I don't have a bunch of them. So it's, it's not, it's not my primary style of hunting. I, I love hunting them that way. And it's really fun when it works out, but, um, you just, you need a lot of land and you need to be able to spread that pressure out. And, um, you know, that's kind of my, my take on it is just try to bounce around between places and not, not hammer one area until I blow everything out. Yeah. So another one of the things I'm thinking about when I imagine trying to hunt buck beds in West Virginia, let's say, or Southern Ohio is these hill country setups, these ridges, these draws, these ditches, uh, the wind thing is obviously tricky. Uh, can you talk to me about how you, you know, how you use the wind in a way to make these hunts work? How do you hunt some of these beds with the wind? How do you set up uh, and consider thermals and swirling and all the different possible challenges that can come up in a place like that. At least I'm, I'm assuming is what you're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, it's a, it's a big challenge because the wind can be tricky in hill country. Um, you know, I've found that I've had my best luck when you have a little bit higher wind, you know, something in the 10 to 12 mile an hour range, something that's, uh, you know, a little bit higher speed, but not, you know, overbearing, but, um, you know, you get into early season and if you have a really calm night, I mean, the wind could just be doing all sorts of stuff. So, um, hunts like that, I rely more on the thermals. Um, and that's why I hunt the edges of a lot of these ditches because, you know, as the thermals start to cool off, you know, that ditch is the first thing to cool off and it'll, you know, it's going to suck that scent right down the ditch. And, uh, most times I'm trying to set up to where the, the bucks are dropping out of their bed and they're you know, filtering around the top side of this ditch. So it's, it's more or less a funnel, but it also acts like, um, kind of a wind barrier in a way because you're, you're wanting your thermals to fall straight down the ditch and go down the hill. So, um, so it's either a higher wind situation or like a straight thermal situation where, um, you know, you can kind of take advantage of that, but uh, it's, you know, I'll also go into a spot a lot of times and it's completely the opposite of what I planned for. It happens all the time. So a lot of times those hunts, you know, I'll still throw a sit at it. You know, I'll, I'll pick the tree, you know, I'll pick the best tree given the situation, you know, with the wind. And that that's one of the aspects of mobile hunting that I think is nice is being able to adjust on the fly, you know, when you go in, but, uh, I get it wrong a lot. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. And, yeah. you know, there's no way around it. Will you ever throw a hunt at a bottom? I mean, th there's lots of spots that I can think of over the years I've seen where you find this spot where all these ridges dump down into a little bit of a bowl and there's big community scrapes down there on the bottom. And there's two <laughs> trails coming off of every one of these points that drops down in there. And this is like the ultimate hub 
and you know they're in there. Uh, but you also know that the wind probably is pretty funky. Uh, historically, I've always said, man, I'm not going to touch it. That sounds like a shit show. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm going to try to get up higher somewhere where the wind's safer. But I've got some buddies who are like, man, you can't make assumptions like that. This could be the Super Bowl of spots, and you'll never know unless you try it. Um, yeah. What would you do? What's your situation there? Your thoughts on that situation? To be honest, I don't hunt a lot of bottoms, like you said, just for that reason. And you know, maybe I'm missing out. Um, you know, the bottoms in the area here in West Virginia, where I'm at, they're really narrow. You know, you don't have very wide creek bottoms at all. But uh, like where we hunted in Missouri, the creek creek bottoms are a lot wider down there. So, you know, I would actually hunt a creek bottom there, uh, where I feel the wind is a little more consistent. But um, yeah, I'm like you. I don't really mess with it a whole lot, and I can't think of any bucks that I've killed in a creek bottom like that. But it's probably just because I don't hunt them that often. So, uh, yeah, maybe I should throw some more sits at them. You know, I don't know. Well, that's the funny thing. It's like we we get these ideas in our minds where we hear it enough, or we experience the downside a time or two, and then we make a rule of it, and we say, okay, that's too dangerous to ever do it. And and maybe it is. But on the flip side, maybe we're creating like a self fulfilling prophecy. Uh, where we never kill bucks on, you know, 75 degree days because none of us ever hunt 75 degree days anymore or something (laughs) like that. (laughs) Exactly. So, hey, we got to hit pause real quick. This is future Mark. And we had some kind of weird technical snafu happen during this interview that resulted in the audio quality for my microphone to all of a sudden just tank. So for the rest of the show, I'm going to sound like crap. I don't know why. I apologize. Bear with me on this, but uh, but Jared sounds just fine. So enjoy the rest. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. So so this year and moving forward, I'm I'm just kind of rechecking all these things. Like what fifth grade math class? They always said like you got to like show your work. Yeah, you check your work and show it on the side of the page. Yeah. I'm trying to do that now as a hunter. <laughs> no, and I you know I need to do the same thing. I'm I'm guilty of it you know, exactly the same way, you know, you get this notion in your head that, you know, this one way never works, but, you know, in some situations, maybe that's, that's what you need to do. So, you know, that's one thing that I need to, I need to be better about is, uh, you know, don't get stuck in, don't get stuck in any one way. Cause, uh, you know, you may try something different and kill the biggest buck you've ever killed. So, yeah. So you, you mentioned a couple examples of this, like that stupid sit next to the road, but are there any other situations where you've been that guy who all your buddies thought was nuts because you did the crazy thing and you did a <laughs> thing that you're not supposed to do and you decide, you know, I got to try it. Or I actually think that even though everybody says don't do X, I'm going to try X. Has there been any situations like that where that's panned out for you or come close or anything like that other than the one example we already heard? Uh, there's There's been a few actually where I've done some crazy stuff and it worked out. Um, the, the one buck I shot in Ohio a couple years ago, I actually snuck right through the middle of a bedding area, um, and set up. It was, you know, just the situation was perfect. It was rainy and cold and we had a cold front coming in. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go right into that bedding area, like right into the heart of the bedding area. And, uh, I killed that buck that night. Um, I slept in the woods overnight one time. Oh, and oh, killed hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold <laughs> on. I need more details on both of these because these are the goods right here. So first, I really want to hear about the sleepover, but back to the back to the bedding bum. Um, what time of year was this? One, what time was this in the day that you did this? 
and then like tell me how you actually pulled that off yeah so this was october 28th um so pre-rut obviously but we had this bedding area on this small piece of property we were hunting so it's on the east side of a ridge it's kind of a bowl in the side of the ridge and it had been clear cut so imagine a four acre like a horseshoe shaped bowl in this ridge that was all clear cut so it's nasty thick um so we had been getting all these bucks on camera kind of on the outskirts of this bedding area um you know they were heading back into this bedding area in the dark so you know that they're they're spending their time in that clear cut so it had been really hot it had been in the 70s and we'd been hunting there for like four days and there was i think there was three of us hunting it's only 60 acres, so it's it's fairly small. But I just started thinking, I was like, man, those bucks are staying in that clear cut, and they're not coming out of there in the daylight. And uh, the, I looked at the weather forecast, and we had a wind switch out of the northwest, and it was going to be raining, and then it was going to clear up in the afternoon. So it was like the perfect scenario. It's like these bucks are going to be on their feet. So it was it was actually still raining pretty good, and the temperature was dropping and I think I left like right at noon, I started walking in there. So I, I walked the downwind side of this bedding area, like right on the edge of it. And I just tiptoed in there. I mean, just creeping in there. And, uh, it was, it was one of the bucks that, uh, I actually jumped up some does. They were right where I kind of wanted to be set up kind of in the, I don't know where the way this horseshoe bends around, I was kind of right in the middle of it. Um, so you had all these exit trails coming out on the bottom end of the the bedding area. So I, it took me two hours to get in there, maybe two and a half hours, just creeping along. And, uh, you know, I, I picked a tree that looked, you know, I never hunted this spot before. I never hunted this tree or anything. You know, I picked this tree and I was like, hey, I think this will work. So I climb up. What made and, that uh, tree the tree? Like what, what, why was that the killing spot in your mind when you saw it? Like what were the features or was there, four of those trails all dumping out right there. Why was that the one? Yeah. So it was like the most centrally located tree, um, for all of the exit trails coming out of bedding. So basically I had exit trails right in front of me. I had exit trails behind me. Um, and it was right on the edge of the clear cut. Like, I mean, right up against the thick stuff. So, um, you know, I knew that if a buck come out of one of those exit trails, it was going to be, it was going to be a money spot. So, you know, I set up and shoot, I think that buck, I think he came out at, uh, I don't know, 4.30. So it was pretty pretty early. But I, I watched him. He come out and he was just feeding, um, just browsing around. And he eventually made his way into range and I, I put an arrow in him. And, uh, you know, there was two or three of my other buddies hunting the same property and they were hunting, you know, the quote unquote best spots. And, uh, you know, it took me getting right up in that bedding area to, to kill that sucker. Man. Yeah. So what about the, the nighttime ninja move? Talk me through that one then. <laughs> so I'd been getting this buck on camera. I've been chasing him for two years and, uh, is this I West Virginia or Ohio? Where, yeah. Yeah. This is West Virginia. Okay. And I figured this buck, I, at least I knew one of two, he was in one of two bedding areas that I knew of. And I was kind of poking around on the edges of him, you know, hunting during bow season. And I hadn't seen him not one time, but I was getting pictures of him on trail camera. So 
it got down to uh, it was rifle season here, and it was the tail end of rifle season. So these deer had been pressured a lot, and this particular bedding area, um, there was a lot of other guys hunting the the top side of it. I guess you you should say uh, on the upwind side, and I knew that uh, I knew that the only way to get in there would would be to get in tight in, in on that bedding area on, on the downwind side and catch him coming back in the morning. So my thinking was, I was like, this buck is probably going to get in there before daylight and bed down. And if I'm not already in there, you know, I'm probably going to blow him out on my entry. So, um, you know, I took a, a little backpacking shelter, you know, in my quilt and all that stuff. And I slept in the Creek bottom right below, right below the bedding area. And, uh, you know, the thermals, it was super cold that night. So the thermals stayed down in that bottom. You know, I didn't really have much, uh, much fear of busting him out or anything like that. But I got up, you know, I slept in that Creek bottom, got up super early that morning and I only had to hike maybe 200 yards to, to where I could watch this, the bottom side of this bedding area. And, uh, man, right at daylight, that sucker come down off the hill coming into that bed and I shot him right at daylight. But uh, he, he ended up being my, my biggest West Virginia buck. He, he was a good one. <laughs> Has there ever been a deer that you were more pumped about other than that? I mean, I don't know if you can top the, the overnight yeah, ambush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that one was really, that was really cool. And I mean, to be honest, I did not think it was going to work. I was like, you know, whatever, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. And just, just see what happens. You know, I had some backpacking gear that I wanted to try out. And I was like, hey, I'll just, you know, we're going to try this out and see what, see what happens. And I just got got lucky and ended up killing him but that was really cool <laughs> yeah i'd say that's incredible what what is the buck that it maybe it is that one but if it's not that buck what's the buck that you're the most proud of like does anything maybe it was how you did it or, or some other circumstances that make it just like that's the one if you could only hold on to one memory of all of your hunts and there's one that you said damn it this is this is it what buck kill would that be yeah, so that's definitely the buck I killed in 2016. Uh, he's a big, he's just a big seven point, but he's he's five and a half years old, just a giant body. Um, but I'd been getting pictures of this buck since he was two and a half years old. And, you know, back at that point in time, I would have shot him when he was two and a half because he was a nice looking deer. Right. So, so I was hunting this deer, you know, when he was two and a half, three and a half, four and a half. But this was kind of before... Um, you know, I really started to dive into the the beast hunting tactics, I guess you should say. So, you know, in 2015 is when I, I really started looking into this beast style hunting and it just kind of clicked with me, you know, all, all these spots in the past where I've killed bucks and it, it just made sense that they were bedding in those spots based on the wind. So, um, I'd actually found this bed on the side of this ridge, um, the, the spring prior and the funny thing is, is where I, I was getting pictures of this buck, like three quarters of a mile away, like a long ways away, but I was, all the pictures were in the middle of the night. So I put a camera up on the, on the outskirts of this bedding area. And lo and behold, this, this big seven point, I was getting pictures of him coming out of that bed. And I'd been trying for, you know, the last two or three years, figuring out, trying to figure out where he was coming from. And when I, when I got pictures of him leaving that bedding area, it just all clicked and it all made sense. And I had, I had hunted that area before, but I was hunting it 
completely wrong. Like I was accessing it from the top of the ridge, you know, on the upwind side, which is just, you know, total rookie move. But, you know, I started thinking <laughs> about it. I was like, man, I need to, I need to take the long way around. I need to, to walk in up this Creek bottom and then it's 300 yards up the side of this really steep ridge. And I was like, man, that's, that's the only way I could get in on this buck to kill him. So it was, uh, it was October 1st and it was the very first time hunting this spot. So I access it just, just like I planned. The wind was perfect coming out of the Southwest. So when I went up the Creek bottom, wind is in my face. It was perfect. So I creep up there. It takes me forever to get set up because I was just trying to be so quiet to get set up. And I pick a tree, I get set up and I'm, you know, at this point I hadn't really killed a buck doing like this tactic before. So, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah, this ain't going to work. He's not bedded there, you know, whatever. It's not, there's no chance this is going to work, but I'm sitting there and I hadn't seen anything. I don't, I don't think I'd seen anything yet. And I look up 70 yards away, you know, to work close to where this bed is at. And I could see that sucker's rack sticking up out of the ferns. He was bedded right, <laughs> right where I planned on. And, uh, man, he got up out of his bed and he, I watched him stretch and do the whole thing and check the wind. And he just starts feeding his way straight to me. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Is this actually going to work? And you know, he only, he only made it probably, I don't know, 40 yards from his bed. And it was almost dark or it was getting close to dark. And I ended up getting a 40 yard shot on him. And I mean, just, I absolutely drilled him. I mean, right through the heart and I watched him fall, but like that was, that buck was my big, like light bulb aha moment. Like, wow, this, this actually works. You know, you can, you can kind of plan on where these bucks are going to be bedded. And if you access it right, you can kill them. And man, after that buck, it was just like, you know, it just opened up the world of bed hunting to me. And, you know, I killed, killed several bucks kind of the same way after that. But yeah, that buck there for sure was, was, uh, yeah, that's a good memory for sure. Yeah. I can, I can see why for, for other people that maybe find themselves in a situation like you were in prior to 2016 and are wanting to have a light bulb moment like that for themselves. Um, you obviously had a bunch of, you know, different challenges along the way. And in the years since you've been perfecting and fine tuning it, if you could give them, you know, what you wish you knew back then so that they could make this work, what would you tell them now to make this style of hunting work for more people? That person that wants to try this has heard about this, but has never really had it click. What do you wish you knew that you do know now that you could share? Yeah, that's a tough one because there's so many different aspects of it. But for me, the biggest thing was just learning how to access a spot. Um, I'd just been doing it wrong for so, so many years. And I just had to look at the way I was doing things and just, you know, kind of come to terms with myself that I, I was just being stupid and I was going about it the wrong way. And once I realized that and then just went into each hunt, you know, just with, with all that access in mind, like, you know, do it the right way or don't do it all, do it at all. Um, even if you don't see any deer, um, cause it, you know, a lot of these hunts, you just don't even see a deer. So it, it can be really tough, but, um, you know, put your time in, um, try to find 
these types of spots that uh, that you can actually access because a lot of them you can't. But and then just you know go about it the right way. Um, you know, look at your access route. Try to try to make a plan and stick to it. Even even if it's the hard way, there may be an easier route in there that will take ten minutes versus two hours. But um, you know, take your time, do it the right way, and uh, you're going to fail more oftentimes than not. But uh, it eventually will work out, and it'll work more often than you think once you you know once you get it dialed in. But um, just have the patience to do it. I mean, that's, that's the hardest part. Um, you know, I talk to a lot of guys that I explain how I access an area and they're, they're like, man, I can never take that much time to, to access a spot. And but man, if that's what needs to be done, you know, that's what you got to do. So, you know, just patience and persistence there, um, or probably number one for me. Makes That makes a lot of sense. And like you said, it's a lot of these things are easier said than done. And the work or the patience or the pain in the ass that you have to endure to actually execute on these things, that's almost always yeah. it separates the, you know, the, the talkers from the doers. Absolutely. That's um, tough. I definitely can attest to that. It's not always fun. And uh, I've certainly been, I've certainly <laughs> yeah. been guilty of sometimes just being like, ah, like, what? yeah, <laughs> man, take wish, the easy way. Yeah. Out. <laughs> but, uh, but you gotta do it. Like you said, sometimes. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you oughta, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't is they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology 
barbecue Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I feel like overall here, there's been this kind of theme of like adjusting or pivoting or you know being able to you know just adapt to the situation, right? Uh, yeah. There's there's one more, I guess, wrench in the gears that I want to throw at you. That's something that a lot <laughs> of us experience, and I want to hear how you handle, how you pivot off of this kind of situation, which is missing a deer or wounding a deer. Um, Ooh, yeah. I know a couple of years ago, last year, you took a shot at a giant in North Dakota and and just nicked him. Um, yep. So I so I know at least recently you've experienced that once. Um, I actually know of a different story too <laughs> in Missouri that maybe you'll bring up. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious. You know, everyone, I, I've never really got a great answer from someone on how they handle this stuff. Maybe because there is no great answer, there's no easy solution. But I'm always curious to hear what people do or think about or how they handle those moments afterwards, how they handle the next day. Um, and I don't know, I haven't got the silver bullet answer that checks all the boxes that, <laughs> and maybe it's because there isn't one, but I'm just curious, how do you handle that situation? How do you move on from it? How do you, how do you try to address whatever happened? How do you, you know, adapt and, and continue on after those, you know, lowest of lows type moments? Yeah. And man, that's a hard one to answer because, you know, I try to look at it, you know, did I do something wrong? Was it something that I did? Did I take a stupid shot or you know, flinch at the shot or something like that. Like if I do something like that, I'm, I'm much harder on myself um, than if something else would happen. So, you know, in a situation like that where I do something really stupid, you know, you know, I just try to keep that in my mind, you know, especially on the next opportunity, you know, learn from that, you know, learn to have a little bit more patience maybe and wait for a better shot. Or, uh, you know, if it, if it comes down to shooting, you know, if I miss a deer, Um, you know, I'm going to spend the next week, like really, really hammering my equipment and just making sure that everything's good and, uh, that I'm confident with it because, you know, if you miss a big buck or something like that, you know, your confidence is usually shot. So, um, I try to shoot enough after a situation like that, that I I can build my confidence back up. And I think that that's, that's probably key. Um, if it's something else, like, you know, you hit a limb that you didn't see or, the deer ducked and got out of the way. Like I, I'm not hard on myself at all. It usually at all in, in that situation. So, you know, things happen, you know, deer move, um, you hit something you didn't see. So, um, I try not to think too much about those situations. I mean, obviously you can learn from them. Um, you know, there's, there's something to be learned from every situation, but, uh, yeah, that's, it's a tough one to answer, man. I mean, cause I, you know, there's some deer that I'm harder on myself um, than, than other deer, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just try to, sh- try to shake it off, but keep it in the back of your mind, you know, what you, what could you have done better in, in a, you know, a different situation. Yeah. So, so I heard a story about you and you can tell me if this is true or not or, or <laughs> correct, correct the details, but I was told that 
you either missed a deer or couldn't get a clear shot of the deer because of your peep sight. And so you decide, you know what, screw this thing. You ripped out the peep sight and you learned to shoot your bow without one. Uh, can you fill me in or correct me on the details there and then explain to me why finally and how you do that now? Yeah, so that's, it actually wasn't just one deer. It was, I think, three different deer in one year or maybe two two hunting seasons. So uh, I had to let two of the biggest bucks I've ever seen in the woods, I had to let them walk because, uh, you know, I just couldn't see through my peep sight good enough to, to really pick a spot. Um, so there was a buck in Missouri. Um, I'd hunted all week down there and finally put the pieces together, had this big giant heavy eight point come in right at last legal shooting light. And it was, you know, kind of cloudy that day. So it was a little bit darker, but I could see him with my naked eye, but man, when I got to full draw and anchor, I could not pick out a spot on that deer. So I let him walk, um, which I'm, I'm proud of that decision. Cause I think a lot of people probably just would have slung one, but, uh, I drew back on him three different times and just couldn't, couldn't figure out where to shoot. So I just let him go. And then I had another one in Ohio, uh, probably the oldest deer I've ever seen, uh, on the hoof. I have no idea how old this buck was, but he was huge. And he come walking in one morning right at legal light and same deal. I just couldn't pick out a spot through my peep site because uh, my previous setups, I just don't like to shoot a really big peep site. I feel like my accuracy suffered a little bit. So I always shot, you know, a little bit smaller peep site with a smaller site housing. So that probably hurt me a little bit, but uh, man, after that one in Missouri, that one hurt pretty bad. So I was like, you know what? This next year, I'm taking the peep sight out, and I'm just going to try to figure it out and shoot without it. So pulled the peep sight out, and uh, so I, I started using the Bomar nose button. Um, most people probably know what those are nowadays, but mm-hmm. you know, it's, a, it's like a spiky little ball that you put on your string, and it, it touches your nose, so you can, you can really feel it because it's, it's kind of sharp. But I stuck one of those on there, pulled the peep sight out, and started shooting that way, and man, I got to be honest, like I've, I shoot better that way than I ever have. Like I just shoot so well without a peep sight. And, uh, you know, I did it last spring before hunting season and shot that way all summer. I was dialed in out to a hundred yards before we went to Alaska to hunt caribou. Um, I shot a caribou at 83 yards with no peep, uh, made a perfect shot on him. And then, you know, this past season, I really got to test it in low light situations uh, while whitetail hunting. So I shot a buck in North Dakota, made a good shot. Um, a couple in West Virginia made good shots. Um, then really the, the ultimate test was the big one I shot in Ohio last year. You know, he came in right at, right at legal shooting time. And, uh, I could, you know, as he walked in, I could see, see his body well enough to, to pick a spot. So when I got to full draw and anchored, I could, I could see good enough to, uh, put a perfect shot on him and, you know, he didn't run 65 yards. So that was like, that was all the testing I needed right there was, you know, in those low light situations. So you can just see so much better. And, uh, for me, it didn't affect accuracy at all. If, if not, it probably helped me. So, um, man, I've been encouraging a lot of people to try it out, you know, especially if you're just a strict whitetail hunter, because, you know, most of your shots come in the, you know, first few minutes of light in the morning and the last few light, last few minutes of light in the evening. So it's been, uh, it's been, it's been my game changer, I guess, here in the past year. 
Man, I guess the proof's in the pudding. You certainly have uh, demonstrated what can happen. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it works. So bold, bold move, but I like it. Um, <laughs> I was told I was crazy by a lot of people, but <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's one of the, the other themes of this episode is he might be crazy, but it works. <laughs> it works. Hey, man. Sometimes you got to be a little bit crazy uh, to make to make it work. But man, there's that's a what's so of, much fun. Yeah, a lot of truth to that. Uh, well, I think this is, I think you bring me to a good place for us to wrap this up because you, you mentioned that Ohio buck, you shot that buck first light and I I was watching the video that you filmed of that hunt. And after you recover the deer, you could just see this, this emotion that you'd gone through and you described how bow hunting can be so frustrating and you can feel like. Yeah, I'm never going to kill something. You can sit there for days and days on that. And I can can say this, that I felt <laughs> this way myself many times where you sit there and you're like, I am an idiot. I am stupid. I can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm never going to kill anything. This is a waste of time or this stand is stupid or this day sucks or whatever. It's it's really easy to get negative on yourself when you do this sometimes because it's, it's not a walk in the park. This is not like riding on a golf cart and drinking a beer in the sunshine and hitting <laughs> off the T9. Right. You know, like you are in, we are inherently doing something that at times is miserable, is difficult, is uncomfortable, is draining, and it's really damn hard. Uh, yeah. So you go through this emotional roller coaster and many, many lows. And then every once in a while, we get this ultimate high like you did, where you went from feeling like you could never kill anything to then all of a sudden it did happen. So what I want to know, Jared, is what has been what's been the key for you handling those days or those moments when it feels like nothing's going your way nothing could ever go your way uh how do you brave those storms and make it to those moments like in ohio where you finally do kill one or like the previous year where you hunted i think all season various times in ohio and didn't kill a buck till january um yep how do you handle those inevitable dry spells that can so easily send us to negative town. Yeah. I mean, it just, for me, it just comes down to attitude. I just really try to keep a positive attitude. Um, even when things really get hard and it just becomes a grind, you know, and I get, I get frustrated just like anybody else and, uh, you know, get down on myself, but, uh, I just try to always, you know, that's, my mantra in my head is it only takes 10 seconds. It only takes 10 seconds. And I I say that multiple times throughout the season and just try to keep a good attitude. Just try to have fun with it because, you know, I know that all of these hard hunts, all of these sits, it's going to eventually turn around. You know, it, it almost always does. You know, if you stick it out long enough and you're persistent, it's, it's eventually going to pay off and you're going to get another chance. So that's just, that's what I tell myself. And that's constantly what's in my brain is it only takes 10 seconds and this whole thing can turn around. And I just try to really remember that and not get, not get too down on myself. Yeah, that's the truth. It can all change in a flip of the switch, snap of the fingers, blink of the eyes. Yep. And uh, yep. your whole season is a totally different story. Absolutely. Well, Jared, I, uh, I've really enjoyed this. I appreciate you sharing you know, these stories and these experiences, uh, I, yeah, I certainly took away a lot and I'm sure folks listening did too. 
I know that you are filming a lot of stuff this fall, right? Where, where can people see some of the hunts you've got coming up this year? Yeah. So pretty much everything I'm doing these days is on the, the tethered nation YouTube page. And, uh, my Instagram is jshafe 30. If you want to find me on there, but, uh, yeah, most of my stuff is on, is on tethered nation. Um, if you want to look on some of my past hunts, um, you know, a lot of these deer I've talked about, I've got on video, but I'm flinging arrows on, uh, on YouTube. So look me up on there and, uh, yeah, I hope that, uh, hope everybody enjoyed it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, appreciate it, Jared and good luck. Uh, good luck with the rest of the season. Yeah, Mark, I appreciate you having me on and good luck to everybody out there. All right. And that'll do it. Appreciate you joining me. Hope you enjoyed this one. Hope you learned something. Hopefully we gave you a thing or two to, uh, get you through this next week and help you out on your next hunt. Appreciate you tuning in. Want to give you a couple quick reminders. If you're not already following what we're doing over on Wired to Hunt across the different platforms, highly recommend you go to our website. You can find it at themeateater.com slash wired. So just go to the Meat Eater website and go to the Wired section, the Wired to Hunt section. You're going to see dozens and dozens of new articles that myself, Tony Peterson, and a handful of other great writers are sharing every week. Check out the Wired Hunt YouTube channel. We've got a new how-to video every single Monday. Check those out. And then make sure you're following Wired to Hunt on Instagram. I've got a lot of updates there, doing day-by-day hunt recaps. Going to get you guys up to speed on what's happening in my world and sharing some lessons learned along the way as well. So that's it for me. Appreciate you guys joining in. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being here. And until next time, best of luck out there in the woods and stay Wired to Hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge-to-edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up. For your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.